Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Happy Palm Sunday. Good to see everyone. Uh, I was telling Trevor earlier at our last church, uh, we had someone who would always greet everybody with a high five on Palm Sunday and say, happy Palm Sunday, everybody. So that's what I have in mind when I'm greeting you and I say, happy Palm Sunday. I can't, maybe at the door, you can give me a high five on the way out, but I'm glad to see everybody this morning. And as Mistona said, or as alluded to, next Sunday is Easter Sunday. And so would invite uh, everyone to come back next Sunday, same time and same place. We hope to see you all here as we celebrate the resurrection today. Together. It's a great Sunday to invite friends or people who haven't been to church in a while or whoever. Uh, would love to see them here. And the children are going to be singing a song for us this morning. We're going to celebrate communion next week. So we have a great Sunday in store for us next Sunday. But today is Palm Sunday. And you picked up on that. We've been singing songs saying Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And we're going to think about that. Let's uh, look at this passage from the Gospel of John, uh, this familiar passage uh, from uh, John chapter 12 about the triumphal entry. And as Jesus entered Jerusalem the week before uh, he was crucified and then rose again. And this is a great passage for today. It's full of of allusions to the Old Testament, to Israel's history. We're going to be looking at some of those things that come up from this passage. Uh, It's also a passage that's uh, rich with imagery. And I think it's one of these great passages that you can really put yourself into. So I want to invite you, even as we read this passage, to use your imaginations uh, as if you were there on that Sunday and what it would have been like to have been uh, at the outside of Jerusalem as Jesus was entering into the city. And all of these people were there greeting him and celebrating him and cheering for him. Uh, What would that have been like? So uh, as we read the passage this morning, keep that in mind. Maybe uh, imagine yourself as a member of the crowd. And uh, let's pray before we read this passage together. Gracious God, as we come to your word this morning, we pray that you would help us to quiet our hearts. That you would help us to quiet our minds. Lord, only you know all of the things that that we bring with us this morning, all of the things that might distract us from hearing what you have to say to us. And so we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would help us to hear what you have to say to us today. Lord, would you bless this reading of your holy word, and then would you apply it to our hearts and our minds? And would you use it to form us and shape us as your followers? And we ask this all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Starting, uh, we'll be reading John chapter 12, starting at verse 12 and reading through verse 19. It says, The next day the great crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. And they took palm branches and they went out to meet him, shouting, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey, and he sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all of this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him, and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. And many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. And so the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
So we had a, an experience a few years ago in uh, our hometown of Charlottesville, Virginia in the United States uh, that's helped me imagine Palm Sunday. It's made it come a little more alive to me as I think about Palm Sunday. Uh, and I don't know if any of you follow uh, college basketball in the United States. If you do, you know that this weekend was the final four. Tomorrow's the big championship game. I don't expect that you follow it. It's okay. I know there's other sports uh, that are much more important than college basketball in the United States. But in the U.S., it's a big deal. It's a big deal. And uh, so for your, your college or your university to win the national championship, there's really almost nothing bigger that can happen. This is just a really big deal. And so whatever town or city or place where that college is located, if you win the national championship, there is a big celebration. And in 2019, in Charlottesville, Virginia, the University of Virginia won the national championship. They didn't win it in Charlottesville, but the team won the national championship. It was this huge celebration. We never won it before. Uh, We had been uh, supposed to win it maybe the year before and then lost in the first round, and it was really sad, and so they had this huge celebration, and as they came back into Charlottesville, which is not that big of a city, uh, there was this huge parade, uh, or not a parade, it was really more of sort of a triumphal entry, where the main highway leading into Charlottesville from the airport was lined on both sides by thousands of people who came out to cheer and to celebrate uh, the team as they entered back into the city, into their hometown, and Uh, The church I worked for at the time was only maybe 100 yards away from Highway 29, which is where they came in. And for some reason, I did not go to see it. I I thought later, I should have gone to see that just to be part of that. And many of my best ideas come to me just a little too late, uh, unfortunately. But I thought, this is such a great example. And it happened the week leading up to Palm Sunday. And I thought, this is such a great image of probably what Palm Sunday looked like. Here's how one newspaper described it uh, in uh, Charlottesville. It said, Cavalier fans, that's the the mascot of the University of Virginia, Cavalier fans came by the thousands on Tuesday afternoon to the John Paul Jones Arena parking lot, many clad in freshly minted t-shirts of many designs, all declaring the University of Virginia Cavaliers to be the 2019 champions of college basketball. Still more lined the sides of U.S. Highway 29 along the route from the Charlottesville Albemarle Airport where water cannon salutes greeted the team's charter flight to the arena, waving to the UVA charter buses as they cruised behind a phalanx of police motorcycles. All were hoping just to catch a glimpse of the heroes. They had breathlessly watched outlast a ferocious Texas Tech University team on television some 20 hours earlier. It was a scene you might expect to greet rock stars or maybe the Queen of England. This is what people, how they described this parade. And so as we consider our passage today, I hope that these images will allow us to picture Jesus' entry into Jerusalem in a different way, in a more real or tangible way. That you might imagine the road into the city of Jerusalem lined on either side by huge crowds of people. People bumping into each other. People trying to get into a position where they can just see Jesus coming into town. Or maybe they might even be able to to reach out and touch him somehow as he passes by. 
I've wondered if there were parents there who had children and that they maybe lifted their children up high in the air or put them on their shoulders just so they could catch a glimpse of this man that many people were calling the Messiah so that one day when they were adults, they could say, I was there. I was there when Jesus came into Jerusalem. I wonder if that's what this was like, what this scene was like that people just wanted to catch a glimpse of Jesus when they entered into Jerusalem. I wonder how many of these people ended up being the early members of the church, the people who put their faith in Jesus soon after and formed these churches and congregations that Paul was writing to later in the New Testament. What this would have been like, this experience would have been like for them in their faith later as they went throughout their life. And this crowd was cheering and chanting. They were using a refrain from Psalm 118, which we've been singing already this morning, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And if you imagine that you were there, can you almost feel yourself getting caught up in the excitement? Can you feel what it might have been like or felt like to have been there, cheering Jesus on as he entered into Jerusalem? Jesus is being welcomed as a conquering hero, as as the champion of his nation, Israel. This crowd is made up of Jesus' true believers. Many of them were Jesus' true believers, likely many of his fellow Galileans who have known about him for years. They've been following him. They've been listening to his uh, teachings. They've seen him perform miracles. They know him by reputation and by word of mouth. And there are even people there who know him in person who have seen and experienced all that his ministry has held. But we're also told that there were new followers that were there as well. People who just in the last week or so had started to hear about who Jesus was because he had raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. And if you're not familiar with that story from John chapter 11, what happens in that story is that Jesus was close friends with this family of siblings, Mary and Martha, and their brother Lazarus, and and they pop up in different places in the Gospels uh, when we read through them. But Lazarus had become so sick, so ill, that he was at the point of death. And so his sisters, Mary and Martha, who were very concerned about him, they sent for Jesus to come and to heal him. But Jesus stayed where he was for a couple of more days for his own reasons, and Lazarus died in the meantime. And it's a significant event in Jesus' life, and it deserves its own sermon. Uh, But the end of the story is that Jesus goes, and he finds Mary and Martha, and he ends up calling Lazarus out of the tomb after he had been dead for what it says was four days, revealing to everyone there the power of God that was at work in and through Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ even had the power to bring people from death to life. And the Apostle Paul says that this is the same power that is at work in us as Jesus' followers now by the power of his Holy Spirit. And again, that deserves its own sermon. We weren't going to go into all of that today, but this is what the people witnessed was this power of God at work in Jesus Christ. And as with so much that happens with Jesus, people had different responses to this miracle as they witnessed it. For some people, it was a time where they said, oh my goodness, look who this is. And they started to put their faith in him. This must be truly the Messiah, the one who was to come. But for the others, it turned them against Jesus. And if you go back and read that story, you see that there were people who went and they reported to the Pharisees what had happened. 
And this is when the plot to kill Jesus really starts to kick in. And they said, we, we have to get rid of this guy because how many people are going to follow him now that they have seen him raise someone from the dead? And so Jesus has become a really, really big deal in a really short amount of time. From being a local prophet going around Galilee and a healer to being a bit of a national celebrity. And that's what's happening with the triumphal entry. That's what our scene today is all about, this passage we just read. But the crowd wants to take things with Jesus even a step further. It's not just about celebrating what he has already done, but it's about celebrating what they want to see him do next. There are a lot of hopes and expectations that are being placed on this man from Galilee. This isn't just a reception for any old celebrity or champion. This crowd is ready to make Jesus their king. They want to make him their king and to give him all of the power and influence and allegiance that goes along with it. We don't have many kings uh, in the world these days, not like we used to, especially not in the West. But it makes me wonder, what would it take for you to be willing to make someone your king? If you think about that for just a second, what kind of person would it have to be for you to be willing to say, I want you to be my king? I'm willing to give you all of the power, all of the authority, all of my allegiance, all of that over my life. What would it take? What would you have to see in someone in order to give that to them? It's an important question for us to ask as we consider who Jesus is and who we claim for him to be in our lives. This is what lies at the heart of this passage, is the kingship of Jesus Christ. What the people wanted it to be, what it actually is, according to Jesus and according to the scriptures, and what it means for us now. The signs are clear. The the crowd is cheering, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then they tack on this little extra exclamation that we don't see in Psalm 118. They say, blessed is the king of Israel. Blessed is the king of Israel. They aren't just lining the streets cheering. Uh, They came with palm branches to wave. And the other Gospels tell us that they laid these branches down in front of Jesus and even their cloaks on the ground as he passed by. And all of these actions and exclamations are filled with lots of meaning, showing that they want Jesus to be their king, that they think he is going to be the great liberator that sets them free from the tyranny of the Roman Empire. They've heard about his many signs and wonders that are said to follow him, and now they've seen a person raised from the dead. And so they know that this man is powerful, that the power of God is at work in this man. And so this must be their guy. This is the one that they have been waiting for. And so they greet him with shouts of, Hosanna, save us, Lord, save us, save us now, give us success. There's an urgency and an expectation in this chant, as well as praise. Jesus, come and be our king. Save us. We know that you are the one who is going to make everything right. Save us. In some ways, this response to Jesus isn't completely surprising. The whole nation has salvation on the brain at this moment. 
Because Jewish people have come from all over Palestine, all over Judea, to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, which commemorates the greatest story of salvation in Israel's history up to that point, when after hundreds of years, God had delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. And more specifically, the Passover commemorates the last of the plagues that God had sent upon Egypt before the Exodus. It was the curse of the firstborn when the firstborn son in every household died, unless their house had been marked by the blood of the sacrificial lamb, and in which case death would pass over their household, and they would be saved from that curse. It would not affect them. And so Passover helps us understand more the significance of Holy Week and the meaning of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, because for all of those who are marked by the blood of his sacrifice, we no longer need to fear the curse of death either. But as people are gathering in Jerusalem again that year under the rule of another foreign oppressor, this time the Roman Empire, it's not surprising that for many people, they are dreaming about and hoping for and perhaps even expecting some sort of deliverance, some sort of salvation that is to come. There's already a celebratory mood in the air, even before Jesus arrives. N.T. Wright describes it this way. He says, they were coming to the place where the living God had chosen to place his name and his presence. The place where, through the regular daily sacrifices, he assured Israel of forgiveness, of fellowship with himself, of hope for their future. They were coming there to celebrate the great Jewish stories of the past, which were mostly stories of freedom and of hope. And they would meet with relatives and with old friends, and there would be singing and prayer and dancing and feasting. All of this was going on as people gathered in Jerusalem that week. And on top of all of this is the excitement of Jesus' followers who believe that he is the Messiah. The person is right. The timing is right. Clearly, something big is about to happen. Something big is about to happen. There's another story, another story of salvation from Israel's history that this crowd would have had in mind too. It's one that's not maybe as familiar to many of us, but it would have been very present in the minds of the Jewish people then. About 200 years before Jesus' time, Israel was under the reign of another foreign tyrant a man named Antiochus Epiphanes IV. And this was a man who had done many bad things in persecution of the Jews under his rule. He had killed many of them, persecuted many of them. One of the most egregious things he did was he allowed the worship of Zeus in the temple in Jerusalem. And so the Israelites were very uh, upset and angry about his rule and wanted to be liberated from him, to be set free once again. And into this situation wrote the great, uh, came the great hero, Judas Maccabeus. Maybe you've heard of him before. Or Judas the Hammer. That was what his nickname meant. And he led the revolt that kicked out Judas, uh, excuse me, Antiochus Epiphanes. And he set up his own dynasty at that time. And the events of this revolt, uh, some of the events of this revolt are what the Jewish people celebrate at Hanukkah even now. And as Judas Maccabeus entered into Jerusalem to cleanse and rebuild the temple, his followers sang and they chanted and they waved palm branches 
as he entered into Jerusalem. And this is what people were looking for from Jesus. They wanted him to be the second coming of the hammer. A great prophet and miracle worker, yes, the second coming of Moses, who was going to lead them out of bondage. But they also wanted him to be a great military conqueror as well. They were very happy for him to use whatever means necessary to liberate Israel, as long as that liberation looked exactly the way that they wanted it to. And again, this isn't necessarily surprising. Kings were expected to be great military leaders, whether they were conquering a nation or defending a nation. This is how many people became kings in the first place, by conquering other kings and military leaders. And we still today often look to military success as a sign of good leadership. It's not uncommon for great military leaders to end up being political leaders as well. We look and say they must be a good leader because they had this successful military career. This crowd wanted to make Jesus their king, and he didn't stop them. There was another time in John's gospel, you may know this story as well, where a crowd tried to make Jesus the king. They said, let's make him the king, and Jesus slipped out very quickly. He was going to have none of it. He ran away and hid. He said, not right now, not here. But this time, at the triumphal entry, Jesus owns it. He, he claims the title. He is the king of Israel. And he will enter Jerusalem as the king who has come to rescue his people. But as we watch the story unfold here in John's gospel, Jesus starts to take matters into his own hands and he reframes the picture that we have of the kind of salvation that he is bringing. He reframes our picture of the kind of kingdom that he is bringing. His action is subtle here, but it plays itself out over the course of the next week in his life, a week that includes washing his disciples' feet and the Last Supper and his prayers in the Garden of Gethsemane and the betrayal by those who are closest to him. He goes through two trials. He goes through beatings and mockings and all of this culminating at the cross. What happens with Jesus during Holy Week was hardly what these crowds were expecting as they cheered for him as he entered Jerusalem. It was the complete opposite of what they were expecting. This was neither the second coming of Moses or the hammer. But what these people got was the first coming of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the son of David and the true king of Israel. And everything that happened over that next week in Jesus' life was as exactly as it was intended. And I think this is an important thing for us to remember, that the celebrations that happened on Palm Sunday weren't some great moment, and then everything just went off the rails, as if this wasn't planned, or as as if this wasn't supposed to happen. Things went horribly wrong. Things had to happen the way that they did in order for our sins to be forgiven. All of this was according to God's plan. All of this was exactly as Jesus expected. And he clues everyone into it here, even at the triumphal entry. We're told that Jesus finds a young donkey and he sits on it. And that's how he passes through these crowds. That is how he chooses to enter the city. And I wonder if anyone there that day picked up on this. If anyone watching that day thought that this was sort of out of the ordinary. Why would he come in on a donkey? On the foal of a donkey? 
a young donkey, if he's really this conquering hero that we're expecting, why would he choose to enter the city this way? Or if everybody was just so caught up in the moment that they didn't even notice. John tells us that the disciples didn't even understand what was happening until later. It didn't make sense to them until they looked backward through the lens of the cross and the empty tomb when Jesus was glorified. And then they understood why he had done these things. Jesus' actions here reveal to us the nature of his kingdom. And the interpretation is given to us through the book of the prophet Zechariah, chapter 9. And verse 9 is quoted here in our passage today, and it says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Clearly, the events of Palm Sunday are reflected in these verses. Jesus is the king who has come with righteousness and with salvation, but yet he comes humbly. And this is the first mark of Jesus' kingship. This is something that we've talked about already just the last few weeks as we've looked at Philippians about uh, the lordship of Jesus Christ and about how his humility is part of what marks that. And it's all over the New Testament that Jesus is a humble king, a humble Lord, and to follow him means to humble ourselves. And maybe it's repeated so much in the New Testament because we need to keep hearing it in order for it to sink in. Humility, humility, humility. This is who Jesus is. This is who God is. And this is what it means to follow him. This is what Jesus demonstrates by riding into Jerusalem on this donkey. And while our story in John chapter, uh, in, in the Gospel of John only quotes chapter 9 from Zechariah, if we move on to verse 10, it fills out the picture for us of Jesus' kingdom even more. It goes on to say this, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations, and his rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This is also what Jesus was communicating by riding into Jerusalem on this donkey, that his kingdom is not one that is going to find its glory in violence or in military might. But Jesus' kingdom is going to be a peaceable kingdom. This is the type of kingdom that is described in Isaiah chapter 11, and I'm gonna read verses one through nine. It says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From the roots, a branch will bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness, the sash around his waist. And then it goes on to say this, the wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, and their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw with the ox. 
the infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest, and they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Contrary to the way that most nations and kingdoms operate, conquering by war and threats of war, leaders jockeying for position with one another, often seeking to improve their own position by any means necessary, Jesus presents quite a different picture of what his kingdom will be like. And I love the images that we get here from Isaiah, that all of the created order is going to be affected by Jesus' kingship and his rule. And you see that natural enemies, predator and prey, are living peacefully together in this kingdom. And I love imagining what that will look like for us as human beings. What would that kind of king, kingdom be like for us? For human beings, for peoples and tribes and nations who have historic rivalries and enmity with each other, what will it be like for them, for us, to live in peace with one another under the reign of Jesus Christ? Behold your king, humble and riding on a donkey. No one shall harm or destroy on all of my holy mountain. The image that we get from Zechariah is one where all of the instruments of war will be cut off and the king will speak peace to the nations. And I love the descriptions both of these prophets give of the extent of the Messiah's reign. In Zechariah, he says his rule will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And Isaiah says, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. Friends, I ask you, what part of this planet is not included in these descriptions? What part of this planet is not included in these descriptions? Jesus' reign will be over it all. There's an old hymn that we used to sing growing up that says, Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does its successive journeys run. His kingship is going to be over all of God's creation. And in fact, it already is. It already is. It's just that it's not acknowledged yet by everyone, everywhere. The triumphal entry, Jesus embraces his role as king of Israel. But even as he does, he immediately begins to redefine for his followers what that kingship is and what it means. And I think the question that Palm Sunday and the triumphal entry raises for all of us is whether or not we see Jesus as our king. Do we see Jesus as our king? Do we acknowledge his kingship in our lives and over all of creation? Friends, I ask you today, is Jesus your king? Is Jesus your king? Are you willing to place all that is yours under his rule? Are you willing to follow in the way of humility and peace, even when it leads to the cross? Are you willing to become peacemakers yourselves, working for the peace of Christ in this world and in your life, praying for that fruit of the Spirit to show up in your life? Jesus, make me an instrument of your peace in this world. In Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, the very beginning in the Beatitudes, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, calling us to this way of life as we follow him. I wonder how many of us aren't looking for Jesus to be a different kind of king than he is, much like many of his followers were that day in Jerusalem. 
How many of us want the kind of kingdom that Jesus is offering here? Are we looking for Jesus to use the means of the world to establish his rule? Are we looking for him to, uh, to exact retribution on the people that we don't like or the people we disagree with or the people that we are angry with? Are we looking for him to set us up as his followers, as those in power, so that we can have things be the way that we want them to be? Is the kingdom that Jesus offers the one that you want to be a part of? John Calvin says this, we daily ask from God in the Lord's prayer that his kingdom may come, but scarcely one person in a hundred earnestly desires it. It's a convicting quote. Do we truly desire God's kingdom? Make no mistake, my friends, Jesus came to Jerusalem as a conqueror and as a liberator as the king of Israel, but his victory was won over evil and sin and death, the spiritual powers that hold this world in its sway. And the means of his victory was giving up his own life, laying down his own life for our sake and for the sake of the whole world. The means of his victory was humility and peace. The means of his victory was the cross. And to all those who would seek to follow Jesus, who would call him king, our path must lead there as well. There is resurrection and eternal life to come, but always on the other side of the cross. We must lay down our own lives first. This is what the trajectory of Holy Week shows us. From Palm Sunday to the empty tomb goes through the cross. There is no other way to get there. There's no other way to get there. But the good news, the good news, my friends, is that it's in making Jesus our king that we are saved and we are set free. We are set free from the ways of this world, of the constant jockeying for position, of lifting ourselves up at the expense of others, of getting what we want through the means of maneuvering and manipulations and even violence at times. We are set free from the sin that so easily entangles us when we make Jesus our king. We're set free from the need to seek vengeance and retribution against those who have wronged us. We are set free from our own angers and judgments and prejudices against other nations and peoples and those who are different from us and those who think differently from us. Jesus turns all of that on his head and invites us into his kingdom, the peaceable kingdom, the kingdom of humility and forgiveness. Friends, Jesus invites us to make him our king. He invites you this day to make him your king. You are invited to make Jesus your king, and he will save you. He will save you now if you let him and give your life to him. Friends, as you go through this holy week, this week of remembering Jesus' sacrifice and his death and our forgiveness on the way to the resurrection, see your king, see your king, lowly and riding on a donkey. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God, we pray that today, as we are gathered here to worship you, to hear your word, to sing your praises, Lord, we pray that we would hear your invitation to make you our king, 
Lord, there are those of us who have given our lives to you long since past. There are those who have done it recently. There are those who are still trying to decide if we might give our lives to you, if that is where true life is found. And Lord, wherever we are today, we pray that we would hear this invitation once again. Lord, to repent, to turn away from our sins, to find freedom in true life in you as our Lord and as our King. We thank you for the sacrifice that you made on our behalf and we pray that you would help us to live into your peaceable kingdom. Lord, may your kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.